Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. This is Chapter 6, Part 2 of Rebecca Solnit's Wanderlust, A History of Walking. It's called The Garden Path. Halfway through the 19th century, Thoreau wrote, When we walk, we naturally go to the fields and woods. What would become of us if we walked only in a garden or a mall? For Thoreau, the desire to walk in the unaltered landscape no longer seemed to have a history, but to be natural If nature means the timeless truth we have found, not the historic specific we have made. Though many nowadays go to the fields and woods to walk, the desire to do so is largely the result of three centuries of cultivating certain beliefs, tastes and values. Before that, the privileged seeking pleasure and aesthetic experience did indeed walk only in a garden or a mall. The taste for nature, already entrenched in Thoreau's time and magnified in our own, has a peculiar history, one that has made nature itself cultural. To understand why people chose to walk out in certain landscapes with certain agendas, one must first understand how that taste was formed in and launched from English gardens. We tend to consider the foundations of our culture to be natural, but every foundation had builders and an origin, which is to say that it was a creative construction, not a biological inevitability. Just as a 12th century cultural revolution ushered in romantic love, as first a literary subject and then a way of experiencing the world, so the 18th century created a taste for nature, without which William and Dorothy Wordsworth would not have chosen to walk long distances in midwinter and to detour from their already arduous course to admire waterfalls. This is not to say that no one felt a tender passion or admired a body of water before these successive revolutions. It is instead to say that a cultural framework arose that would inculcate such tendencies in the wider public, give them certain conventional avenues of expression, attribute to them certain redemptive values, and to alter the surrounding world to enhance those tendencies. It is impossible to overemphasize how profound is the effect of this revolution on the taste for nature and the practice for walking. It reshaped both the intellectual world and the physical one, sending populations of travelers to hitherto obscure destinations, creating innumerable parks, preserves, trails, guides, clubs and organizations, and a vast body of art and literature with almost no precedent before the 18th century. 
Some influences stand out like a landmark and leave a traceable legacy with evident airs. But the most profound influences soak into the cultural landscape like rain and nourish everyday consciousness. Such an influence is likely to go undetected, for it comes to seem the way things have always been, the natural or even the only way to look at the world. This is the influence Shelley had in mind when he wrote, Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Such an influence is the romantic taste for landscape, for wild places, for simplicity, for nature as an ideal, for walking in the landscape as the consummation of a relationship with such places and an expression of the desire for simplicity, purity, solitude. Which is to say, walking is natural, a rather part of natural history. But choosing to walk in the landscape as a, con- as a contemplative, spiritual or aesthetic experience has a specific cultural ancestry. This is the history that has already become naturalized for Thoreau and that took walkers further and further afield. For the changing history of walking is inseparable for the changing taste in places in which to walk. The real reason Wordsworth and his peers seem to be the founders rather than the transformers of a tradition of walking for aesthetic reasons is because the walk that preceded theirs are so unremarkable. In fact, these short walks in safe places are only incidental to the histories of architecture and gardens. They have no literature of their own. Only mentions in novels, journals and letters. The core of their history is concealed within another history of making places to walk. Places that became larger and more culturally significant as the 18th century wore on. It is also the history of a radical transformation of taste from the formal and highly structured to the informal and naturalistic. It seems in its origin a trivial history of the idle aristocracy and their architecture. But in its results it created some of the most subversive and delightful places and practices in the contemporary world. The taste for walking and landscape became a kind of Trojan horse that would eventually democratize many arenas and in the 20th century literally bring down the barriers around aristocratic estates. The practice of walking can be traced through places. By the 16th century, as castles were beginning to turn into palaces, mansions, galleries, long narrow rooms like corridors, though often leading nowhere, often began to be part of the design. They were used for exercise indoors. Quote, 16th century, doctors stressed the importance of daily walking to preserve health, and galleries made exercise possible when the weather would otherwise have prevented it, writes Mark Giraudard in his History of the Country House. The gallery eventually became a place for displaying paintings. And 
though museum galleries are still a place where people stroll, the strolling is no longer the point. Queen Elizabeth added a raised terrace walk to, to Winter Castle and walked there for an hour before dinner on every day that was not too windy. Walking was still more for health than for pleasure, though gardens were also being used for walking and some kind of pleasure must have accrued there. But the taste for landscape was still fairly limited. On October the 11th, 1660, Samuel Pepys went walking in St. James's Park after dinner, but he only notes the water pumps at work there. Two years later, on May the 21st, 1662, he writes that he and his wife went walking in Whitehall Garden, but he seemed more interested in the lingerie of the king's mistress in the privy garden, eventually hung there to dry. It was society that interested him, not nature, and landscape was not yet a significant subject for British painting and poetry, as it was to become. Until the surroundings became important, the walk was just movement, not experience. A revolution was underway, however, in gardens. The medieval garden had been surrounded by high walls, in part for security in unstable times. In pictures of these gardens, the occupants most often sit or recline, listening to music or conversing. The enclosed garden had been, since the Song of Songs, a metaphor for the female body, and at least since the rise of the courtly love tradition, the site of much courtship and flirtation. Flowers, herbs, fruit-bearing trees, fountains and musical instruments made them places that speak to all the senses. And the world outside this voluptuous sanctum seemed to provide more than enough exercise since medieval nobles were still bodily involved in military and household matters. As the world became safer and the aristocratic residence became more a palace than a fortress, the gardens of Europe began to expand. Flowers and fruit were disappearing from the gardens. It was the eye to which these expanded realms appear, appealed. The Renaissance garden was a place in which one could take a walk as well as sit, and the Baroque garden grew vast, just as walking was exercise. For those who needed need no longer work, so these vast gardens were cultivated landscape that need no longer produce anything more than mental, physical and social stimulation for walkers. This is really very interesting. Even that it raises questions of social history, social class, and how tastes change over a period of time. Ah, here comes my daughter. Here, Louis. Louis, come here. Come here. Come here. Good dog. 
I gotta put a lead on you. I can't. Ah, 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 ah. Now there's a dog, there's a horse, and a rider coming. And it doesn't matter who it is. Let's walk slowly in direction of the horse, the pony. Okay, we'll stop here, yeah? We will. Yeah, we'll sit. Good dog. The good dog. Yeah. Hi, Endo. Hi, Grace. Can I get past? Can you get what? Oh. I can open the gate if you like. No or yes? Were the Baroque garden not so ostentatious, a display of wealth and power? Its abstractness could be called austere. Trees and hedges were forced into squares and cones, paths, avenues, and walls were laid out as straight lines. Water was pumped into fountains or poured into geometric pools. A platonic order, a superimposition of the ideal on the messy material of the real, triumphed. Such gardens extended the geometry and symmetry of architecture into the organic world. But they still provided opportunities for informal and private behavior throughout their history. One of the most one of the major functions of aristocratic gardens was to give people a place to retreat from the household into contemplation or private conversation. In England, William and Mary added new gardens to Hampton Court in 1699, gardens in which one could walk for a mile before reaching the wall. Walks or paths were becoming increasingly important parts of gardens, and they are indirect evidence of the increasing popularity of walking. In this context, a walk means a path broad enough for two people to walk abreast. It could be called a conversational route. English traveller and chronicler Celia Fiennes wrote of a garden she visited near the beginning of the 18th century. There is gravel walks and grass and close walks. There is one walk all the length of the garden called the crooked walk of grass well cut and rolled. It is indented in and out of corners and so is the wall which makes you think you are at the end of the walk several times before you are. End quote. But the walls of the garden were disappearing and the distinction between it and the landscape beyond became harder and harder to find. Renaissance Italian gardens had been built by preference upon slopes that gave views of the countryside beyond, connecting the garden to the world. But French and English gardens seldom had such settings. 
the line of sight only extended to the garden wall. Then eventually, through a variety of openings in the garden wall. When the ha-ha came into being in the early decades of the 18th century, the walls came down in Britain. A ditch relatively invisible from any distance. The ha-ha's so named because strollers were said to exclaim ha-ha in surprise when they came upon it, provided an invisible barrier that allowed the garden's inhabitants to gaze into the distance uninterrupted. Where the eye went, the walker would soon follow. Most English estates consisted of a series of increasingly controlled spaces. The park, the garden and the house. Originally, hunting preserves Parks remained as a kind of buffer zone between the leisure classes and the agricultural land and workers around them and often provided timber and grazing space. The garden was typically a much smaller space surrounding the house. Susan Landon, in her history of these parks, writes of the straight avenues of trees planted in parks and gardens in the 17th century. Come here. These avenues provided the shade and shelter for walks, which having been made fashionable by Charles II, were now becoming de rigueur in parks. Certainly the liking for air and exercise was already considered an English taste. Walks were now laid out by private owners in their country parks and walking became as much a part of the pleasure of a park as hunting, driving and riding. The walks themselves were made increasingly interesting with aesthetic considerations developing from the simple static vista from a window or terrace to something that took account of a more mobile point of view. The walker, in fact, made a circuit, and in the 18th century this was to become the standard manner for viewing gardens and parks. The days when it was only safe to walk on the castle terrace, the allure had long since passed. End quote. The formal garden with its patterns made of clipped hedges, geometric pools and trees in orderly ranks had suggested that nature was a chaos on which men imposed order. Though, starting initially in the Renaissance, paintings of unaltered landscapes, if not the unaltered land itself, were appreciated. In England, the garden would become less and less formal as the 18th century progressed, and this idea of naturalistic landscaping that would be called the Jardin Anglais, the English garden, or the landscape garden, is one of the great English contributions to Western culture. As the visual barrier that separated it from its surroundings vanished, the design of the garden became less distinctly separate too. In 1709, Anthony Ashley Cooper, Earl of Shaftesbury, had effused, O glorious nature, 
supremely fair and sovereignly good, I shall no longer resist the passion growing in me for things of a natural kind, where neither art nor the conceit or the caprice of men of man has spoiled their genuine order. By breaking in upon that primitive state, even the rude rocks, the mossy caverns, the irregular, unwrought grottos and broken falls of water, with all the horrid graces of the wilderness itself, as representing nature more, will be the more engaging and appear with a magnificence beyond the formal mockery of princely gardens. End quote. Rhetoric raced ahead of practice. It would be many more decades before princely gardens gave way to wilderness. But Shaftesbury's optimistic view of nature as inherently good, joined with the optimism that men could appropriate, improve upon, or invent nature in their gardens. Shaftesbury's optimistic view of nature is inherent, as inherently good joined with the optimism that men could appropriate, improve upon, or invent nature in their gardens. We'll stop there. We'll pause there before going on to more thoughts about gardens. It does remind me of all sorts of things, including Versailles, with all the formal gardens there. Stowe, with its formal gardens owned by the National Trust. Stourhead, with its later gardens. Yeah, I, I remember little pieces of the gardens that I've seen. And somehow or other, somehow or other Capability Brown is going to come into this. But I know Capability Brown even moved to hills in order to make things look more aesthetically pleasing. Anyway, come to me, my dog. We've had a little adventure today. Now it's time to return to the car and return home. The reading of Wanderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit, has a long way to go yet. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.